is a good or useful video for human beings? Generally, when we think about a good image, we think about an image that replicates what we would actually see with our own eyes. We think about a video that would look exactly like it would if we were standing there instead of the camera itself. But as it turns out, most of the uses of cameras in the future are not going to be for people. They're going to be for machines. If it's not already the case, it certainly will be in the near future, where most cameras will be used to have machines take action and kick off notifications and detect things rather than human beings. And as it turns out, if a machine, if a computer, needs to detect faces, it may not be taking pictures that are ideally suited for posting on Instagram or looking photorealistic, it may need to calibrate and take entirely different pictures that aren't attractive to the human eye, but that detect faces quickly and accurately, much more quickly and accurately than a full color image that we would expect to see from our iPhone camera, for example, or from a DSLR camera that we might buy at a, a nice camera shop somewhere. Similarly, if a machine has to detect the distance between objects or the distance between objects and the camera itself, it may not be suited for photorealism, but it may need to be calibrated, tweaked, and adjusted in different ways to serve its end, to serve its deliverable outcome. So if businesses are interested in security application or automotive companies are interested in uh, detecting distances between vehicles or identifying signs on the road when a car is driving by, it may need cameras calibrated in entirely different ways, or almost certainly needs cameras calibrated in entirely different ways than, let's say, your iPhone camera or a camera that you would buy for your own personal use. In this episode on AI and industry, we interview Alan Benchatrit, who is the CEO at Algalux, uh, which is a Montreal-based computer vision company that works on optimization for computer vision. And Alan speaks with us this week about how different kinds of use cases for computer vision need to be calibrated in entirely different ways uh, to make them come to life. How the calibration and sort of orchestration of the various bits and parts and computation behind a camera need to be adjusted for different goals. Uh, for any business out there that has security cameras right now, that works in the automotive space, uh, that has a retail storefront in some way, anybody that's leveraging cameras currently or will be in the near term uh, may be suited to understand some of these underlying technologies that are going to permit what the smart cameras of the future will allow for. This might be a little bit of a seeing around the corner in terms of what computer vision will be capable of in the next maybe uh, two to five years. And we have Alan to thank for boiling down that complicated technology into simple language and business use cases that I think are pretty easy to understand and digest. So certainly appreciate that with Alan. Without further ado, we'll dive into the interview. This is Alan with Algalux here on AI and Industry. So, Alan, we're going to be talking today about camera technology, about sort of computer vision and how that relates to cameras. There is a process within the camera itself of tuning, that is to say, uh, sort of making sure that the, the sensors and the parts of the camera itself are sort of producing the kind of image that we'd like to see. Talk us through sort of what that tuning process looks like and involves now. I know right now it's quite a human process. I think a lot of people are going to be new to this, so let's break it down. Sure. Pleasure to be with you, Dan. So yeah, uh, basically, when uh, we talk about traditional digital cameras, you've got some key components that make up you know, what we see as a camera today. So you've got the lens, uh, which is how we traditionally recognize that there's a camera inside a product, whether that be a smartphone or a laptop or, or even a, a car. Uh, you've got the sensor, which does basically the image capture and produces 
what's known as a raw file that has a ton of data in it. And then that raw file gets passed along to an image processor, also known as an image signal processor or an ISP. And that ISP is responsible for essentially taking that raw file with all of that data in it and basically processing all of that data in a certain way as to produce a compressed image um, that actually looks good to the human eye. And, you know, when you combine those things together, uh, you actually have a camera. Now, each one of those components is typically produced by completely different types of vendors. And so what's really critical as part of this whole process is that there is a tuning exercise that actually takes into account the specific lens module, the specific sensor, and the specific image processor so that you are tuning to basically extract the best possible outcome out of the images uh, that you are producing with that camera system. Um, and that tuning exercise today is pretty much done uh, through human labor, and it's done as a subjective exercise. So uh, teams of people will actually work on tuning the camera. Uh, typically, this will be many, many months of work, and they will actually use subjective uh, human vision to decide you know, at what point they're satisfied with the types of images that are being produced by the camera uh, before it is sent off as a final prototype to manufacturing. From there, you know, what we see is um, an opportunity to apply um, artificial intelligence, uh, both uh, machine learning and deep learning, to actually have uh, a significant impact on how tuning is being done today. So tuning, uh, as I said earlier, is an exercise that can take many, many months, um, sometimes years, uh, at a cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars or more. And that's for the companies that actually have uh, the human capital internally, the employees, you know, the staff yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, you know, to be able to, to actually do that. If not, they've got to farm that out to specialized companies, which means they lose control over the process and potentially uh, an opportunity to build some intellectual property uh, into their base. Or in many cases, you know, for the entrepreneur who just wants to build a drone and wants to stick a camera in it. They might just buy something off the shelf, off the internet, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and basically just plug it in and and hope for the best. And just just to kind of paint the picture in, in the audience's brain here, Alan, this is good backdrop as to what tuning actually is, what has to happen here. Um, you know, this is of course it, it seems there was maybe some very rough equivalent to tuning before digital cameras in the dark room, but I, I presume that this tuning issue is really a digital image concern, obviously. When you talk about people are kind of tweaking and doing the tuning and subjectively saying, hey, does this image look good? Does this image look good? What are they tuning, in fact? In other words, is there some facet of the of the ISP where they're just sort of changing the various kind of weights or settings or making sort of small adjustments to say, hey, when we take pictures in this kind of sunlight um, over and over and over and we have it, you know, tuned or tweaked? Like, are there particular knobs these people are twisting, sort of right or left or up or down? You know, what I think about, Alan, and what I think the audience would be familiar with is very basic user tools for sort of laypersons like like myself, uh, where, you know, you take an image and you can 
turn up the contrast, you can turn down the contrast, all that silly stuff. I imagine it's much more complicated to tweak an ISP. What are these settings? What are the knobs being turned to adjust these images so we can get a sense of what these humans are doing? Yeah, so I think that, you know, the way that you frame that is actually exactly right. Um, you know, a typical ISP will have hundreds to thousands of parameters to tune. And it's all about the things that you just kind of covered, right? There's going to be things like contrast and sharpness. And, uh, you know, you've got to take into account for lighting conditions. And uh, to your point, depending on the use case, right, um, you know, the use case will be different if it's an automotive camera as compared to a smartphone camera. Uh, you're going to have to take, you know, these different use cases into consideration as well. So imagine you know, the kind of post-processing you might do with Photoshop and actually build all of that into the ISP. And that's what the ISP is pre-programmed to do in real time so that you don't have to do any post-processing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, in some tool like Adobe, you know, you might have a couple dozen things to tweak. In the actual ISP itself, you might have thousands. But the goal is for, for humans to take oodles and oodles of pictures to tweak and tweak and tweak the parameters and say, okay, let's freeze these parameters. Reason being, when we take pictures at night, pictures in the day, pictures in this lighting, pictures of these colors, we aggregately are getting a pretty consistent quality uh, out the back end, and so we should freeze these. These are going to be the parameters we go with. And then, of course, you know, you can do that again in Adobe, but but those have been baked in in a much greater variety in the ISP itself. Am I am I picking up what you're putting down here? That's that's absolutely right. And of course, in doing so, you're taking the complexity out of the processing uh, work so that, you know, people who have a smartphone don't have to worry about doing any kind of additional processing. It's been kind of, you know, done on their behalf uh, during, you know, the camera tuning process. And, you know, to just talk a little bit about the complexity here, I mean, the way the tuning works is that, you know, as you point out, there there will be, you know, uh, thousands of images taken by the camera at the outset, both, you know, uh, natural scenes and also synthetic scenes. And, um, you know, they will actually, you know, run those images through the image processor. They'll basically look at, you know, how those images, you know, are, are perceived through human vision. And then they will literally go back and they will make some adjustments to those parameters and then they'll take more images. And this is an iterative process that can take many, many months. And again, is subject to, uh, to, to subjective, you know, image tuning by the you know handful of experts that uh, the company will have on hand. Got it. Okay. So th this, is a, this is a curious thing. And now the goal, of course, for you folks is to you know, very niche, interesting application of, of AI here is to replace a lot of that kind of constantly iterative human tweaking and, and I guess, for lack of a better word here, Alan, eyeballing, if you will, and to replace a good deal of that with a machine learning sort of process. In my imagination, as I think about, again, I'm big on painting mental images so that the audience knows exactly what you're doing and what we're talking about. I, I see a system that sort of has control. So instead of human hands on the knobs, I see a system that has control of the knobs. You know, we mentioned there's thousands of them in these ISPs. I see a system feeding in a, a particular set of however many X various images and scenes that are somewhat indicative of the full range and the totality of what could be taken on a camera in general. You know, depending on the use case, that's going to be different, right? But if this is a smartphone, maybe it's like 
you know, dinner settings, nature scenes, pictures of dogs, you know, whatever the heck the case may be. Uh, we, we get oodles of those that represent sort of the, the possibility space of smartphone pictures, and those are automatically pumped in. And we sort of know, based on what humans have given a thumbs up to, what is a scored good image and what is a scored bad image so we don't actually have to have humans feed one give it a bunch of thumbs up or thumbs down, feed two, give it a bunch of thumbs up, thumbs down. We save all the thumbs up, we pump in images, and we just say, look, humans are going to like these pictures. End of story. Is this correct in terms of how this is applied, or am I off base here? No, that, that's correct. Um, the, the approach that we're taking is basically uh, one where we are uh, replacing that subjective tuning with metric-based tuning. And for the metrics, um, you know, these can be, you know, particular to a to a customer or to an industry. And unless, you know, there's some kind of, you know, regulatory body that's deciding, you know, exactly, you know, what the measures should be or what the ranges of measures should be, those are things that can be decided by our customer um, as they are basically getting the system ready to accept the the the, the data sets from the uh, from the camera. So they will basically decide on the ranges. And then our platform, uh, using machine learning, will run through thousands of iterations because this is clearly a multivariate problem, right? You've got a lot, a lot of different variables that have to be looked at at the same time. And we'll run through thousands of iterations on, you know, an hourly basis in order to come up to the optimal configurations for that uh, camera or vision system. Got it. And and it seems to me, you know, and, and it, it's not one that's in front of enough people to make it obvious to everyone who thinks about AI. But when, when you distill what the problem is, it sounds like a pretty good fit uh, for machine learning. We, we have oodles of variables. Uh, there's probably a way to, to understand what a good score and a bad score is and to kind of feed these in and sift these through in some degree uh, of bulk. And I think that Maybe that's a transferable lesson here, even outside of the camera world, is that problems of this kind, uh, innumerable you know, potential tweaks, a better answer and a worse answer as judged by humans who know their stuff, uh, circumstances like that, particularly with image data in this case, it's kind of a, a low-hanging fruit, you know, that's, that's, that's what machine learning sort of made for right now. I mean, that's sort of its sweet spot, and it sounds like you guys are really knuckling down on the sweet spot within the camera, which most people are probably unaware of that that robust problem that's in there. I guess now we can talk about where those cameras are being used and, and how that changes the approach. Um, you know, you and I were talking off Mike Allen and, and you had made some important points about how what you tune for, for a smartphone, which, which I presume would be something roughly equivalent to what kinds of pictures do humans like, uh, both when they look at it on their camera and when they look at it on social media. I, I imagine that that's our proxy for a win is sort of how, how satisfied are people when they look on their camera, when they look on, on social media. Um, in an automotive context, maybe we don't need pretty pictures. We just need to know what a sidewalk is and to not hit a person. Um, how, how are systems tweaked and adjusted in, let's say, automotive in a way that would be different from, you know, the smartphone example that we had? Well, uh, you know, what's interesting is that more and more um, the devices, uh, the ones, the kinds that we're talking about right now, um, are actually moving uh, from the traditional human vision cameras to a paradigm where there are going to be both human vision and computer vision use cases. So to look at, you know, three different industries, let's, let's start with the smartphone industry. So in the smartphone industry, 
Um, obviously, you could take pictures with your camera or you could take selfies. And, and those are basically the regular images that we would be used to looking at. And, and their image quality is going to be pretty important. Um, on the other hand, a computer vision uh, use case within the smartphone uh, market might be something like facial detection or, um, you know, anything that may actually use the camera to recognize uh, an object uh, for the purpose of, you know, making decisions. If we transfer that to uh, the security market, of course, you've got, you know, typical video feed of, you know, what's going on, let's say, from a traffic perspective. But um, computer vision could actually lend itself to recognizing license plates, as an example. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's where uh, or or potentially facial detection in a security setting at an airport, for example. Um, and then, of course, automotive, where, you know, we tend to spend a lot of our time. Uh, you again have both types of cameras. You've got uh, the traditional backup camera, uh, which, you know, really has not produced great image quality. I mean, it's, you know, fairly grainy typically. Um, and there hasn't been a whole lot of emphasis there on tuning. Uh, but that is something that we address. On the other hand, where the market is going, you, you know, from an autonomy perspective, there's going to be more and more dependence on computer vision cameras to do things like pedestrian detection, curbside detection, yeah. uh, blind spot detection, you know, being able to detect, you know, lane markers and, and whatnot. And so um, these are very different paradigms. When you're tuning for image quality for human vision, you really are looking to basically get as much noise out of the image and really kind of, you know, make for very sharp, you know, uh, images that, you know, really take color into account and the things that, you know, are very valuable to, you know, to, to humans from, from a perception perspective. On the other hand, computer vision works really in a completely different way. And it's impossible for humans to predict what a computer is going to need to understand or see in an image in order to do proper detection yeah. and classification. And, and in fact, those two Objectives can sometimes be very competing. And, you know, we, we have a, a number of use cases that we demonstrate where this is really the case. Huh. So, and this is, this is interesting. So we'll dig into a little bit of what is meant here. And again, the way that I'm understanding it, there may be, let's just say security, physical security in an airport. Um, of course, we need to be able to, I would imagine for the most part, at least for the, at least for the next 10 years, uh, in, unless, um, all those folks at the TSA become robots soon. Uh, I do think that at some point they'll go, but I don't think it'll be in the next 10 years. But somebody's going to sit at a desk and they're going to need to look at a screen and know what the heck is going on at a certain gate or what the heck's going on at a certain exit or entry. And they're going to have to understand that the way humans understand um, you know, images. It's going to have to be you know, made in some degree for that. But at the same time, and maybe there will be some other facet of that same entryway or exit whereby we need a machine to detect Lord knows what. Let's say a particular kind of luggage. Let's say a particular facial structures. Let's say particular kind of behavior so that people don't need to say, oh, two people are fighting or arguing, right? A machine can know two people are fighting and arguing. And it's possible that nice crystal clarity, the way you'd see on a, on a, a really nice you know, color image of a landscape or of a room or something like that, um, is actually not going to be ideal for picking up the exact rigor of facial structure, the exact rigor of the micro body languages that indicate this could become conflict, and that we would need to tweak the camera itself 
to be more prepared to read that and drink that in automatically. And it may not look all that great to humans, but by golly, it is better for picking up what we need this camera to pick up. And it sounds like that's sort of where we're leaning, is that there will be a lot of camera applications that are for something other than human consumption with the eyeballs. Um, and we'll need to tune for that, if you will. Yeah, in fact, I think it's uh, very fair to argue that uh, in a not-too-distant future, unless we're there already, uh, there will be a lot more computer vision cameras and sensors uh, around us in, in our daily lives than we could expect to see uh, in the way of, uh, of human vision cameras. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's only so many human eyeballs, uh, but there's not only so many computers. I mean, there is, but within reason, it's uh, kind of astronomically different in terms of its ability to scale. So, yeah, so there may be more use cases. You know, you mentioned security, you mentioned automotive, uh, you mentioned um, smartphone. Each of these will have different things that they are picking up. Now, you work a lot in automotive, Alan. I just want to put a little bit more color on this for people thinking through it, and then we'll be able to wrap up here. Um, sure. You know, for automotive, what are some of the, you know, again, when we think about, you know, the autom automotive implications of a machine vision, of course, we're going to have LIDAR and radar and, and other things like that, various additional sensors that, that humans don't have a correlate to. Um, but for, for images, yeah, of course, if it's an autonomous car, it doesn't have a camera so that someone sitting in it can watch the camera. It's like they could just look out the window. Um, it has a, a camera in it so that a machine can adjust and calibrate its activities based on its environment. What are some of those activities? What are some of the most important things? You know, we've got collision avoidance. We've got pedestrian avoidance. We've got maybe, you know, I'm thinking like looking at nuances of weather and road conditions and, and you know, slippery circumstances and things like this. What are some of these unique use cases that a machine vision in automotive needs to coax out that may be quite different than what a pretty image looks like for a human? Well, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and, and I'll actually maybe take us a, a bit of a step back because even human vision cameras um, are actually changing um, at, a, at a pretty rapid pace within the automotive industry. So it is already a trend uh, that we will be seeing uh, the mirrors in our cars uh, convert to cameras. Uh, one of the use cases here is that, you know, as we drive, you know, bigger cars with, you know, more obstruction within the vehicle cabin, uh, like passengers in the backseat or luggage or boxes, you know, shopping bags and whatnot, it becomes very difficult to actually see through the um, rear view mirror. And so uh, we already know that some of those mirrors are going to be replaced by cameras cameras that will be sitting on the outside of the vehicle to actually give an unobstructed view of what is behind us, you know, when we are in traffic. And I'm not talking about the rear view camera that we see, you know, today for backing up purposes. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about, you know, us being able to look at, uh, you know, the, the traditional mirror that is in front of us while we're driving, except the image that's going to be projected there will actually come from a camera as opposed to a mirror. Um, and I think that, you know, we can expect to see this uh, starting to uh, emerge uh, in, in the not too distant future. Wow. So the human vision cameras, um, I think, you know, certainly, you know, are going to change within within vehicles. Uh, and then as far as your computer vision, I think you, you, you hit on, you know, some of the really key points here. I mean, ideally, as we move towards, you know, full autonomy, which, you know, might still be, you know, you know some years away, uh, the idea is really going to be for the car to be able to recognize absolutely everything in its environment 
uh, much the same way a human would. Now, the, the difference is that we take very much for granted you know, how many decisions we're making and how many things we're seeing as we're driving yep. even slowly down a street. Yeah. Um, and so all of these different circumstances have to be programmed in uh, in order for the computer vision cameras uh, to be able to, you know, make these uh, decisions on the fly. One of the use cases which is most talked about and, and certainly one of the hardest to solve is high dynamic range. Uh, and this is whereby, you know, you might be driving from a dark tunnel out into sunlight. And, you know, even as humans, we tend to be blinded a little bit um, as, you know, we move from dark to sunlight or yep. vice versa, as we move from the outdoors into the indoors of a, of a, of a tunnel. Uh, and so the camera's got to be able to understand and adjust for that in, in real time. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, there's been some well-documented cases where the camera's inability to, to do that, um, you know, has, uh, has led to, uh, to issues. Yeah. So all of these, like you said, everything that we take for granted, and it's it's kind of a funny correlate to, to AI in general. It's like um, in in the early days of AI, whatever, the, the 60s, you know, just imagining kind of, man, if we could write enough rules, bada bing, bada boom. But yeah, all of the subtle nuances of where our perception sort of automatically bounces to and what sticks out and what doesn't, these are incredibly sort of dexterous cognitive tasks to sort of put it in one way. Um, and we're going to have to replicate a good deal of that. It seems to me that, you know, as you had mentioned, Alan, there's going to be a lot of camera applications for computer vision, more so than for, for human vision. I think an exercise for the people tuned in who may be in a company that in some way could use computer vision, whether that be for security, uh, for autonomous vehicles, you know, for gear or equipment that they make or something along those lines, um, what needs to be optimized for for those tasks? And the chance is or the chances are, if it's computer vision, you know, you probably can't just stick a GoPro on everything. There probably actually does have to be some tweaking and modulating to ensure that you can nail whatever your task is, whether that's, you know, finding faces, uh, detecting vehicles, um, whatever the case may be, that, that there will sort of be a pretty robust process of tuning these systems because we can't just take things that work well for the human eye and plug them into all computer vision applications. It seems like that's kind of a big takeaway, Alan. Let me know if you'd agree on that one. I absolutely would. And, and I think, you know, that begs the question of whether the way that we've approached human vision tuning in the past uh, lends itself properly to tuning for computer vision. And, you know, we, you know, propose that it does not, and that there will be a, a requirement for somewhat of a paradigm shift, eventually, in the way that, you know, these solutions are architected, that will actually be able to provide a much more dependable and much more robust approach to uh, computer vision tuning. And, you know, these are things that uh, we are, you know, uh, looking to solve through, um, through you know, a much more advanced form of, uh, of AI called deep learning. Yep. And uh, indeed, an interesting niche application of AI. There is, there is uh, no doubt about that. And I think a curious sort of inspiration for folks who might have similar optimization problems somewhere in the back of their business this is a curious optimization problem that I think probably very few other people took seriously. Alan, I'm really glad you were able to share your insights with us. That's all the time that we have, but thank you so much for being here on AI and Industry. Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure being with you.
That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.